0: It is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023, from Charlotte, North Carolina. Today and tomorrow, it's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, Fox News contributor, townhall.com political editor, and host of this fine program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. So glad to have you all here. Thank you very, very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Lots of goodies and content there, guybensonshow.com. Also where you can find our free podcast on demand every day when the show is over. That continues to really grow, leaps and bounds, thanks to all of you. You can also go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at guybensonshow. That's the handle on both of those platforms. Follow me personally on both, at Benson. Here's the lineup today. Mark Thiessen, former presidential speechwriter. He'll be here later this hour helping me break down the State of the Union last night. Yes, I watched it all. I watched the response. I've got a few thoughts. We'll get into those, play some audio, and then get Mark's reaction later this hour. Congressman Tony Gonzalez was there, Republican of Texas. There was like about one minute devoted to the border, if you can even call it devoted to the border. Immigration broadly, we will get his reaction. In the next hour, and then Juan Williams from the other side of the ideological spectrum, he will be here with some of his thoughts in our final hour. My guess is Juan probably liked the speech more than I did. Just a guess. (laughs) So let's talk about what happened last night. I saw the numbers, by the way, just breaking moments ago, the ratings way down across the board. Fox was number one, so we appreciate that. But last year across the networks, apparently the State of the Union combined for about 38 million viewers, which really isn't that great considering that you've got all the broadcast networks, all the cable news networks, C-SPAN, put all that combined, 38 million is not that impressive. But that was the number last year for President Biden. This year it's looking like it was in the ballpark even a little less than 20 million. Maybe the numbers will shake out just a little bit, but that is a big drop-off, not quite – 50% Fifty percent of the audience going where uh, away rather, but close, 38 to 20 is a big, big collapse in the ratings. So I know you had people pounding on their chests like King Kong last night. Look at what Biden has done. This is an amazing speech. Look at all the energy. Well, not a lot of people were watching. They were overwhelmingly Democrats, and actually that might help him at least in terms of staving off a challenger in the primary. If he intends to run, like that could be interesting. But in terms of some sort of game changer in moving the needle in public opinion, I don't think that almost ever happens with these speeches anyway, let alone with like 19 or 20 million people watching across the country. Right. A lot of people seeing that as the option, right? You're flipping through the channels, you're looking at the channel guide and you see on so many different networks, the State of the Union address and a huge, huge majority of voters in this country looking at that saying, you know what, let's find a different option. But masochists like yours truly watched the whole thing, and I was watching it so you didn't have to and we could just tell you about it. That's part of the the role that we have here, the duty that we play. It's a public service. Think of it that way. I don't have a ton of thoughts on it. He was much more energetic than he sometimes is. Sometimes he was weirdly uncomfortably inappropriately energetic and racing through certain sentences and passages it's just stumbling all over his words shouting weirdly a couple of times there was like this one part about china where he was yelling and it really didn't make a lot of sense it was a mixed bag on the policy and the substance we saw that typical laundry list of anecdotes and stories and guests in the gallery, and he's making claims and he's making proposals and spend this and do that. And, you know, it's kind of a partisan spectacle. We see that regularly from presidents from both parties. There was not really a great thematic arc to the speech. It was just sort of like jumping from one topic to another. And then, you know, God bless America at the end. We'll see if Mark Teeson agrees coming up later this hour. He used to write these things or help write these things. It was just kind of like put a bunch of different topics into a shotgun and blast it out. That's how it felt to me. You know, it it was fine, parts of it. There were some stirring and uplifting moments. There always are. They find people who have interesting stories or moving stories, and those tributes can be uh, Impressive. Some of it was misleading. Some of it was downright dishonest and demagogic. It was kind of a blend of that stuff. Tendentious is what politicians do, right? Tendentiousness is sort of uh, in in the playbook. Um, some of it was like really nitty-gritty trivial, like, oh, we, we want to prevent hotels from charging resort fees if they're not resorts. It's like, okay, this is really the job of the president to be talking about this stuff. But I don't know. Maybe it's good politics. Not sure. What I do feel pretty confident about is that given what we saw last night, the reaction to it, and the paltry viewing audience across all the networks combined, this is not going to leave any sort of lasting or indelible or even like medium-term mark on our politics. Even I was questioning whether we should open with it today, the day after. Like, do we really want to talk about this? Yeah, we'll talk about it. And talk about it tomorrow. I mean, maybe in passing. Friday, it's just like rearview mirror. This was not a significant State of the Union address, in my view. And I mean, we'll play some of the soundbites from it, but there were not big, memorable, important moments. And if you were waiting for maybe some news on China and the balloon or next steps, and there were some explosive reports from the Washington Post about how this was, you know, part of a broad aerial espionage campaign against the U.S. and other Western countries. And apparently the Chinese military snubbing a call from the U.S. military to talk about any of it. I mean, there are developments happening, big ones. And it was barely mentioned in passing obliquely by Biden toward the end of the speech. So, you know, there you have it. I do want to make a couple of points about the speech and some of the substance. And I wrote, about some of this at townhall.com today and fleshing it out. You can go read the piece at the tip sheet. Number one, the president did a lot of calls for bipartisanship, which is what you got to do when there's divided government. He now has a Republican House. He had Speaker McCarthy sitting behind him. The game has changed in D.C., so let's work together. Fine, this is how he talked on the campaign trail. It's how he talked when he won and had his victory speech. It's just really difficult to stomach some of the unity talk. We are the United States of America. We work together. We can do this. Republicans and Democrats, it doesn't matter, right? This is part of what I think he thinks, in his mind, is his brand. Same guy, though, who goes down to Georgia and says, if you agree with the Georgia election law or you disagree with the Democrats' election takeover bill in Congress, you're basically Bull Connor all over again. And you support Jim Crow 2.0 worse than Jim Crow segregation. Like, same guy. You can't make good-faith, well-received appeals for working together and bipartisanship when you also say those types of things. Right? He's done it for, really, his whole career. You think back to 2012 and the back-in-chains slavery smear against Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. I mean, occasionally this ornery, angry guy makes these horrible, insulting, slanderous statements about his political opponents. But then it's back to like, oh, I'm just the uh, kindly uh, old gentleman here, grandpa who can, you know, fix us and whatever. What's the thing that he says? Heal the country's soul or something? Well, you know, physician, <laughs> heal thyself on that front first, maybe. It's just, it's hard to take. Secondly, there was a big blow up over the heckling and the jeering and some of the booing from Republicans. And this is becoming, I guess, more commonplace, some of this lack of decorum. And some people clutch their pearls when it happens, and then they're very selective in their outrage. I didn't like it when Joe Wilson heckled Obama. I don't like it when you have people screaming at the president from the gallery or, you know, from from the seats in the chamber. Even if he's lying, even if he's being shameless, I just feel like you shouldn't do it. Am I losing my mind over it? I saw some people calling it, again, an attack on our democracy because everything is. One, one person who's widely shared, this was chilling. It was not chilling. It was, like, slightly counterproductive and unseemly. It was not chilling. It was not horrifying. I don't think it was terribly helpful. But, you know, we can sort of keep this stuff in perspective. And also, I'm so old that I remember when the Speaker of the House in the last Congress— stood up behind the president who was wrapping up his State of the Union address and was physically, dramatically ripping the printed pieces of paper of the speech to shreds behind him. And a lot of the people who were, oh, where are the smelling salts? Someone yelled at Joe. Can you believe these horrid Republicans? Sane people, many of them, were queening." At Nancy Pelosi tearing up Donald Trump's speech, it's just like the, the double standards and the hysteria and the selective outrage, at least to me, gets exhausting. And I guess some people, it's like, you know, it's like a sporting event for them, so they're all spun up about it. Right? I guess, fine. The moment where the yelling got loudest was over an untrue claim. All right, Joe Biden was talking about the debt ceiling, and he accused, again, Republicans of wanting to cut Medicare and Social Security in the context of the debt ceiling fight or negotiation. It's not true. They've said repeatedly it's not true. Kevin McCarthy has said in interviews and speeches those things are off the table, at least in this fight, not going to happen. But he said it anyway, I guess for political reasons. They were yelling, and then he went back at them, cut five.
3: Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. So folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the off the books now, right? They're not to be smart. All right.
0: We got unanimity. All right, so big standing ovation, bipartisanship, and people were like, oh, Biden tricked these Republicans. It's a bait and switch, and he was so nimble that he got them to agree with him. Now, what he did was he told a lie about what their position was on the debt ceiling. They groaned and yelled and booed. Then he said, "Okay, I guess we're not going to do that," and they all cheered. And they're like, "Hey, presto! He's a magician." What a genius. He owned them. What? It's like very obvious what just happened. Now, I hate to be the uh, proverbial turd in the punch bowl, but I have to just say, as someone who is, oh, less than half the president's age, Medicare and Social Security absolutely need to get fixed and reformed. They are going to go insolvent. The date gets closer and closer. The programs will cease to exist as we know them, unless changes are made for future seniors. That has to happen. That is just math. I agree that it's not appropriate to use this leverage moment of the debt limit fight to try to do that. You need bipartisan buy-in. Right now we have bipartisan non-buy-in on that. This is not the moment to do it. It doesn't change the math. At some point it has to happen. You can either do it somewhat on our own terms or very painfully down the line when the math just crashes into us. The Republicans mostly are unserious about it, and the Democrats are completely delusional and reckless about it. It's actually kind of a depressing thought. Something else that happened was interesting. Toward the end of the speech, there was a little lecture that we got from the president on political violence. Paul Pelosi, the former speaker's husband, was in the gallery. I want to play you that audio. I have a few reactions to that as soon as we come back. Then Mark Thiessen... Who is the chief uh, speechwriter for Bush 43? He'll be here after that in the next segment. A lot to still get to. On this Wednesday, it is The Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned.
2: Fresh, conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News senior meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to The Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
0: Guy Benson, which last night the president, near the end of his speech, had something to say about political violence. And to illustrate the problem of political violence in the United States, he welcomed Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, who, of course, was attacked in their home. He's recovered, which is great to see. But here's what Biden said, cut 20.
3: The last few years, our democracy has been threatened and attacked, put at risk, put to the test in this very room on January the 6th. And then just a few months ago, an unhinged big lie assailed and unleashed of political violence at the home of the then Speaker of the House of Representatives, using the very same language the insurrectionists used as they stalked these halls and chanted on January 6th. Here tonight in this chamber is a man who bears the scars of that brutal attack, but is as tough and as strong as resilient as they get, my friend Paul Pelosi. Paul Stanley.
0: And then he went on to basically say, you know, we can't have political violence. We don't do that in America, paraphrasing. Now, here's the thing. The attack was terrible. The guy who did it, by the way, an illegal immigrant from Canada, if memory serves, did have some kooky election conspiracy stuff that he believes. He also has a lot of kooky, crazy stuff that he believes, most of it left wing. The guy was apparently well-known to local authorities. He would go to left-wing protests. He was like a nudist, and environmentalist, lived in some like commune-type place. If you had to say he was one side or the other, he was more left than right. Guy's own kid says, oh yeah, no, he was a lefty. Right? That's the, that's the backdrop there. To try to frame that, as Biden did, as a right-wing attack because of the horrible right-wingers, I don't think that's really a great fair example to lay at the feet of one side or the other. But being fair, I guess, is not really what Biden's interested in doing here. I think a leader, someone who actually believes the unity stuff that he occasionally mouths, a leader would perhaps bring examples from both sides and then tell both sides to knock it off and tell some un. Comfortable truths, inconvenient truths, maybe to his own tribe. He didn't do that. He had this sort of slanted, one-sided view of the Pelosi attack and who was to blame for it and just sort of lumping it in with January 6th. Like, oh, this is another right-wing thing. Now, an opportunity to really meaningfully go after political violence and threats was staring Biden literally directly in the face, sitting right in front of him. Right out there, feet away, was Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Left-winger went to his, came across the whole country, armed to the teeth, to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh. It was foiled, the plot. To this day, to my knowledge, the president has still not personally directly condemned the assassination plot against a sitting Supreme Court justice. There was Kavanaugh in the audience. Could we have mentioned that? and then had the thunderous thing about how we don't do violence and threats in this country. Ample opportunity, an obvious one. He didn't go there, of course. He didn't talk about the violence against pro-life centers, of course. So it's just more partisan talk from someone who wants to lecture on high, but won't be fair-minded about it. That's Joe Biden. Mark Thiessen coming up next.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show. Charlotte, North Carolina today. Great to be here. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website. Podcasts always free. Talking about the State of the Union last night. We watched it so you didn't have to. Ratings apparently way down. Not quite half, but close to half of last year. Across the networks. Yikes. Fox, though. Fox News in first place. With us now, Mark Teeson, columnist at The Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, and chief presidential speechwriter to George W. Bush. Mark, great to have you here. Good to be with you, guy. So my first question is just this from like a, a rhetorical aesthetic standpoint. As someone who knows what you're talking about and you know what you're doing when it comes to putting together a speech, my impression, setting everything else aside, my impression of last night was... Uh, And maybe I missed it. Maybe there was some hidden genius uh, that I just uh, couldn't recognize. But it seemed to me that this was just a random blast of, you know, one topic to another kind of jolting and lurching with no central theme, no narrative arc, and not even like a big, really stirring conclusion at the end. It was just, you know, little snippets of talking points. That felt extremely disjointed to
4: me, how did you perceive it well that's uh, that that is true I agree with you though that partly the nature of a State of the Union address. I was a lead writer on two State of the Unions, and it's both the most watched and the worst speech any president gives because while tens of millions of people tune in so you've got a direct channel to the American people, it's also by, by necessity a laundry list of policies, which is really mm-hmm. hard to turn into compelling rhetoric. So you have to come up with a theme to wrap those, those policies into. And so Biden, Biden's theme was let's finish the job. Uh, the problem, and he kept saying that over and over again, the problem is that most Americans think that Bi- Biden's first two years in office have been a disaster. So when he says, let's finish the job, they think the job of what? Like destroying the economy? Lowering my, lowering my wages? Destroying, yeah, it feels you know, like a threat. The border. I mean, it like, feels
0: like let's finish the job feels like a threat.
4: Exactly. Exactly right. And so, you know, you've got you've got a you know, new ABC post ABC News poll. Sixty percent, 62 percent of Americans think he's accomplished not much or little or nothing during his presidency. Sixty two percent say they would be dissatisfied or angry if he was reelected. Uh, you know, so when you say when your theme is let's finish the job, that's not very effective for a country to think you've made their situation. Their their personal circumstances worse, their personal finances worse uh, and all the rest of it. Let's finish the job isn't a a terribly effective
0: thing. Well, he would also just kind of careen back and forth from let's work together and be unified. We can do this to like hardcore hyperpartisan stuff. And so you had a little bit of that whiplash. And I was also thinking we mentioned it yesterday on the show about the CBS News poll that just came out this week that asked Americans, has Joe Biden made X, Y and Z better or worse? And he was underwater on all three. You know, underwater by 30 points on all three. It was your financial situation, illegal immigration, and then unifying the country or, like, you know, uh, easing the divisions. And less than 20 percent of the American people, 19 percent, said that Biden has made our divisions better and sort of healed things. Nineteen percent, a majority, said he's made them worse. And so, I mean, I know that he has this self-conception of being that type of figure but the voters just don't see it, and I think they don't see it for good reason. That's not really who he is, whatever he might think, or whatever he might say from
4: time to time. Well, that's – it. just – I mean it's it – literally – that speech literally encapsulates his presidency. So he uses the rhetoric of unity but the policies of division. So, so you know he gives an inaugural address where he says I'm going to put my whole soul into the uniting the country, and then his first act is to pass a COVID relief bill – uh, with Democrat votes alone, a $1.9 trillion social spending bill disguised as COVID relief. And people forget this. But, you know, I mean, keep in mind, this was a he took something that had been bipartisan under Trump and made it partisan. The, the Trump passed five COVID relief bills inside the bipartisan COVID relief bills inside the mental law. Republicans came to Biden and said, we're, we're not gonna, we're not down with the $1.9 trillion, but but we, we could do, you know, a, a trillion dollars. Um, and we'll give you – and 10 of them came, led by Susan Collins, so filibuster-proof bipartisan majority. He said, no thanks. I want everything. So he literally took something that had been bipartisan under Trump, who was, the, in his telling, the most divisive president in American history, and made it divisive and partisan. And then it went on from that for his, for his ne- next two years of his presidency. So he, he uses the rhetoric of unity, but then what he does is he, he, he sows division by how he governs.
0: There are a couple other little moments here or there. Uh, at one point, talking about COVID, Biden was referring to COVID shutting down our businesses, shutting down our schools. And I think it's always important to remind folks, well, COVID was the cause or the justification for it. But it was government officials who made those decisions. And government officials, including his administration, who kept schools closed and urged schools to remain closed and stood in the way of reopening them for far too long harming millions of kids. It wasn't just some, you know, act of God out there. These were adults making decisions based on what they knew was bogus science rooted in, you know, deep pocketed special interest demands from teachers unions, for example. It didn't happen by accident or through inertia. Choices were made. And I think it's just crucial to always fact check that point. Uh, Biden at one point in the speech said that he thinks that the U.S. economy will be reliant on oil for at least the next 10 years. That got a big laugh from Republicans because that's, I mean, 10 years, yeah, I think that's a pretty safe bet, Mr. President. Then when he finally got around to foreign policy, he was sort of feeling himself on the China thing. And I'm all for Republicans and Democrats coming together to stand up to China. I think that is an American duty, regardless of ideology. But this was kind of a weird, shouty moment, cut 15.
3: Name me a world leader who changed places with Xi Jinping name me one name me one
0: i mean i don't really understand the point here mark i think there's quite a lot of world leaders who would love to be the dictator in charge of one of the largest countries in the in the whole world uh, i you know it's it's an evil regime that he presides over that's genocidal and does a bunch of horrible stuff but It just seemed like the yelling and saying name one leader who would change place with Xi Jinping, it's like you could probably name dozens. I just didn't really get that moment.
4: I didn't get that moment either, and I didn't get the complete inattention to to China. I mean he spent more time talking about uh, resort – fighting unfair resort fees and unfair uh, corporate fees than he did talking about China. Yeah, he, he, he spent ten sentences on China. Yeah, he's like he's like, uh,
0: he's like he's well, like well you know we'll deal with uh, Beijing another day. But back to sandals, is it really all inclusive?
4: <laughs>
0: exactly.
4: You know, like exactly. what? I mean, think about this. If this had happened on, when Ronald Reagan was president, Ronald Reagan would have not only shot down the balloon over the Pacific instead of the Atlantic, he would have had the pilot who fired the missile in the in the gallery. <laughs> called him out alongside <laughs> Letty Skutnik, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that, but, you know, we all know that Biden is no Reagan. But, I mean, just the idea that, you know, that we're the, that in a State of the Union address where we're now engaged in uh, what China, China and Russia have locked arms to wage a new Cold War against us, and it merits 10 sentences, uh, but but resort fees and all the rest of it mer- merit, you know, an extended dialogue is is just stunning. And then also, you know, he didn't thank the troops. He didn't say anything about first responders. It was just it was it was like so many things that are standard in a State of the Union address. He didn't do. But then, and then he talks about the bipartisanship and all. He says, I signed 300 bipartisan bills into law in, in my first two years in office. You know how many Donald Trump signed into office in his first 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 two years? Four hundred and forty two. Because most of them are ceremonial, renaming post offices or things that are not controversial. Presidents president signs you know, bipartisan bills every day. It's the controversial stuff that he's made partisan. And then mm-hmm. he turns around and attacks Republicans and says something that's completely false, which is that this Republicans want to sunset Social Security. I mean, it's just a lie. The Washington Post fact checker gave it four Pinocchios when he said it the first time, and he keeps, say, and he keeps saying it. And oh, but Mark, no, Mark, you're missing.
0: You're missing the point. This was genius jujitsu by Biden, who lied about Republicans, and then they were mad about it, and then he said, "Wait, we agree," and they said, "Yes," and then, presto, he won. That that's haven't you haven't you heard, Mark? That's what happened.
4: Before your eyes, the, unif- the unifier, the in chief.
0: <laughs> very very weird stuff. And I look, I, I get people saying that you know he maybe. Exceeded expectations or is more energetic than usual, and he parried some of the Republican heckling you know, decently well. I get all that, but, I mean, you have people f- tripping over themselves. This was the greatest speech I've ever seen from him. I think uh, one particularly demented uh, political commentator said it was the greatest State of the Union address he has ever seen in his decades of life. It's like I don't understand why people get in their brains to be such hacks sometimes. You know, grading on a curve – I guess it was fine. I don't think it was very good, and I don't think we'll be talking about it or remembering it, as I said earlier, by Friday. You know, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Let's quickly, though, Mark, talk about the response, the Republican response. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, down there in Little Rock, beautiful exterior shot of that mansion, the southern governor's mansions. Those often look very, very nice and She was seated in a living room setting. She gave, I think it was well delivered. I think, uh, you know, it looked very good. Her pacing was good. I thought that in terms of what it was, much shorter, obviously, than the State of the Union, it was structured quite well. And her her anecdotes about visiting the troops and, you know, the dead of night and the secret trip overseas, sort of a a stirring conclusion. She talked about beating cancer earlier in the speech. I just think that she did a, a very nice job. Some of the political stuff, though, Mark, those were those are some pretty tough shots for a State of the Union response, uh, a little bit more uh, aggressive than we've seen, at least in the last couple of years, to my ear. Do you agree? It's sort of
4: mash Biden in a way. I mean, you're right, I think. And I think it just shows how things, how aggressive things have gotten overall. Um, You know, I, I don't I didn't like the lack of decorum in the House. Uh, people yelling and calling him a liar and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. But he, but, but he provoked it by lying about them. I mean, what did he think they were going to do when when he says that you want to sunset Social Security? Of course people are going to stand up and say no. It, was, it sounded like the British House of Commons rather than uh, the Congress. So I, I just think there's been a general decline in decorum where you've, you've never had a president go out and actually lie like that about the people sitting right in front of him and then people shouting back at him. And then I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, you know, she I think she took some some shots. I I generally speaking, my, my advice always is if you're offered the chance to deliver the rebuttal to the State of the Union address, just say no. <laughs> It's it's, it's a no-win situation generally. It's a very hard speech to deliver because the president just had all the pomp and circumstance of entering into the House chamber, standing up before the rostrum of the House, you know, all all that ceremony in front of a live audience of people going back and forth. And then you're standing there in front of a camera somewhere uh, trying to match it. It just never works. Considering that high bar that you have to meet to just do well, I think she did very well.
0: Yeah, and I think Tim Scott did a good job a couple of years ago. Kim Reynolds last year in Iowa did a good job. She did a good job. I thought the speech was uh, structured and delivered well. She had, you know, a couple zingers about sort of woke culture and that sort of stuff that, that got people's attention. This was not just sort of like a, hi, we're the Republicans and we're nice and we disagree with President Biden on some things and we love America. There were some some harder shots in there uh, as as well, and I think that's kind of on brand a little bit for her as feisty. She also went out of her way to draw attention to this point point in cut 25.
4: I'll be the first to admit, President Biden and I don't have a lot in common. I'm for freedom. He's for government control. At 40, I'm the youngest governor in the country. And at 80, he's the oldest president in American history.
0: I mean, fact check true on that. She came back to the theme repeatedly of a new generation of leadership aimed, obviously, at the sitting president, but also arguably could be perceived as putting someone else in the crosshairs as well, someone that she used to work for. I wonder if that was uncomfortably received at all at Mar-a-Lago.
4: I don't know if it was intentional or not. It's interesting. But, you know, it it is it does tap into a feeling that the American people have. I mean, the the polls show that a majority of Americans will be very disappointed or angry if Trump and Biden are the two choices they have in the next election. Uh, And there is a there is a feeling that maybe it's time uh, the baby boomers have had their day We've had enough baby boom presidents, like maybe it's time for someone from another generation to take up the mantle of leadership um, in both parties. Uh, so I think that tapped into something that I think is uh, is resonant uh, in the country.
0: She also made a point arguing that this is not really necessarily about right versus left or Republican versus Democrat. It's normal versus crazy. And I think she's right, actually. I think there's a lot of votes out there to be won for the party that, can present itself authentically and credibly as normal compared to the crazy of the other side. The problem is we're, it kind of feels like we're often in a crazy Olympics <laughs> and both sides are really striving to win those crazy Olympics, Mark. And I just don't know this is a much broader conversation for another day, sort of the incentive structure in our parties and our primaries and all of this, and you know, sort of corp- corporate media and then partisan media, it, it kind of fuels the crazy and makes it harder to, you know, people who embrace the normal to win. Maybe just a quick reflection on that, because I thought it was it was a good way that she framed it. I'm just not sure that it means Republicans are going to win that fight every time because they inarguably
4: didn't win it in twenty twenty two. No, they didn't win it in twenty twenty two. I mean, they, they, so Joe Biden presided over the, wor- the worst inflation in 40 years, the worst collapse in real wages in four decades, the worst border crisis in American history, worst crime wave since the 1990s, worst increase in gasoline prices on record, all the-, all the rest of it. And he had the best performance of any president since John F. Kennedy in the first midterm, except George W. Bush before 9- after 9-11. Why is that? It wasn't an endorsement of Democrats. It was a rejection of Republicans. It was a rejection of the crazy and the candidates we put forward. And it seems like the lesson Republicans took from that is let's double down on the crazy. So we'll see. That,
0: I mean, that's, the lesson will have to play out over the next two years, and there are big decisions to make. And we will be discussing that theme quite a lot, I would imagine. Mark Tyson, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Mark, always appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Up on a break. Let's take it. Stay tuned.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: We are back. I went a little long there with Mark Thiessen, but I do want to just read from a Washington Post story that I referenced at the top. Very big news, bigger than anything in the State of the Union, I would say. Barely mentioned at all, as we were just saying in the State of the Union address. The Chinese balloon was part of a vast aerial surveillance program, according to the U.S., The American intelligence community has linked the Chinese spy balloon shot down on Saturday to a vast surveillance program run by the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, in China. U.S. officials have begun to brief allies and partners who have been similarly targeted. The surveillance effort, which has operated for several years, partly out of a city and province on China's south coast, has collected information on military assets in countries and areas of emerging strategic interest to China, including Japan, India, Vietnam, Taiwan, the Philippines, and now, of course, we know the United States as well. I guess there was a report that the U.S. tried to reach out to some Chinese military counterparts. That call didn't happen. Chinese uh, didn't want to basically pick up the phone. We had the really interesting, fascinating, somewhat disturbing interview yesterday with General Keene here on some of this stuff. This is a big, big story and a huge deal. And I think we're just getting started on some of this stuff with China. So stay tuned on that and stay tuned here. Another hour coming up.
2: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: A brand new hour is upon us here on the Guy Benson Show, our second of three on the day. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand Every single day when the show is over at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can check us out there as well. Broadcasting from Charlotte, North Carolina. Very pleased to have you all here as we move into our middle hour. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. With the Dow down 207 points at the close today in the red, finishing up at 33,949. Joining me now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican of Texas 23. And we are very pleased to welcome back to the show. Congressman, good to have you here. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me back on. Let's just start with big picture thoughts from you on the State of the Union last night. What was it like in the room? I know there's a lot of controversy about what was happening and some of the yelling and the back and forth. What's your take on it?
5: You know, uh, President Biden isn't exactly the most uh uh eloquent motivated speaker uh but tonight or last night was was extra flat i mean you, those things uh city unions are, are kind of extra theater uh but there was he missed the mark on on some 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 key mo- key moments one was uh not really addressing the border or bringing up the border it's almost as if they don't want to talk about it uh, he, you know, it he, he didn't separate border security and immigration. Uh, Democrats have essentially given up on all of that. And then, of course, the foreign policy aspect of it, too. Uh, no mention of China. I'm actually headed to Taiwan here in a couple of weeks. It'll be my second trip in, in a little over a year. Uh, and, and I think it's a reminder to everybody that if we wait on the president, we're going to be waiting a long time. So Congress has to roll up its sleeves. We're an equal branch of government. We got to go to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were mentions of the border, but very, very quick and in passing. He mentioned China once or twice, but not in any sort of like serious, in-depth way, especially in light of the the espionage incursion that we all just witnessed last week. Uh, On the border piece of it, and I know you and I talk about this issue uh, quite a lot, what struck me was when he was talking about immigration and border stuff, almost all of his rhetoric could have just been – copied and pasted from a previous Democratic the State of the Union address, like we aren't living through this historic, disastrous crisis at the Southern border. It was just sort of like, oh, well, you know, we've got to do better and we've got to pass, you know, reform and we need the dreamers and a path to citizenship. It just felt like it was uh, existing in some previous era or in some alternate universe compared to what the real world looks like based on his policies right now. Yeah, that's exactly right,
5: a Guy. I mean, it was almost as if he wasn't trying. And he brings up uh, Dreamers and, and DACA, and I'll remind everyone that the Democrats controlled the House, they controlled the Senate, and they controlled the White House for two years, and they did absolutely nothing. And so to kind of – it's insulting to come out and go, it's the Republicans' fault why nothing is done. Now, now, I have no interest in rhetoric, and I think there's a danger when the Republican Party goes down and, and almost uh, takes the bait – and and we go down the rhetoric standpoint, I'll give you an example. I've, I've been very vocal about being against HR 29, this border safety and security act uh, that to me, that piece of legislation essentially bans all asylum claims. I don't think that helps my district or, or solve the border crisis in any form or fashion. Matter of fact, we had a hearing, we have an, we had an oversight hearing yesterday and I asked one of the, uh, the border patrol chiefs from the Valley. I said, Hey, look, if, uh, uh, one, do you have the ability to detain an asylee for the duration of the claim? And she's like, no, of course not. Yeah, because it takes five years. I mean it's absolutely insane. That that immigration system is completely broken. It takes five years before someone gets their claim heard. And the second question was to the other border Patrol, uh, border Patrol chief from Tucson area. I asked him, hey, if you banned all asylum claims, would, would, would we be able to secure the border any better? And he goes no. And the reason why he said no is because in Tucson area – that's where all the gotaways are happening. Nobody's giving themselves up. So this is a level of nuance, I think, that is important to the Republican Party because we're never going to get anything from the Democrats and certainly not from the White House.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just he – I saw one estimate that he spent like a minute on the border. He spoke for well over an hour. We have the worst border crisis in the history of the country. And he addressed it for one minute and didn't even really address it. Now, he did later – Go to the issue of fentanyl and fentanyl deaths, and that's an important one. I mean, you, you hear these stories. Sometimes they're you know, on the news uh, with this very dangerous drug ruining American lives, ending American lives by the thousands. I think it's an appropriate thing for a president and a federal government to be worried about. But there were some Republicans in the hall, and I, I don't really love the shouting and that kind of thing, but they were saying like, yo, this is a border issue. And it's just it's a little bit galling, honestly, to see the president sort of leaning into his whole, you know, empathy shtick on fentanyl. And he had, you know, the parents of someone that lost a child. It's very sad. There is a direct connection, sadly, between the extent of the problem and his policies at the border. And for him to just kind of try to pretend like that link, that linkage doesn't exist at all is at the very least, I think, another sign of unseriousness. A thousand percent. I mean,
5: the way they have handled a nonchalant, you know, getting 13 Americans killed in Afghanistan as if that was okay, the way they've handled the border crisis uh, with, with fentanyl coming over and killing Americans, all Americans with record numbers as if this is okay, the way they've handled classified material as if it is perfectly okay. I spent 20 years, a uh, guy, spent 20 years in the Navy as a cryptologist holding a top-secret SEI clearance. I mean, if, if someone that I, myself, or someone that worked in that space did something like that, it, it would be the end of your career, and, and you would be locked up. And then to, to
0: just kind of sweep these things under the rug as if they're okay, no, this is the worst. Well, I mean, think, think about that, actually, because it's actually kind of a profound point. If you had done that, if you had taken classified materials – to your house or put it in your garage or done anything like that, you would have been in handcuffs, you would have faced dishonorable discharge, and there is no way you could have even launched a prayer of a congressional campaign. You wouldn't be in Congress. Now, he's the president, right? I mean, I, that's, I'm just glad that you brought that up. In the time that we have left, uh, left, though, here in this interview, Congressman, I do want to ask you, since you mentioned it briefly, some of these hearings on the border, Democrats never wanted to talk about it. DHS tried to prevent Border Patrol from testifying. Finally, that has been lifted. Some of them showed up yesterday, and there was some Q&A. You talked about some of those questions you asked. Were there any other big takeaways? Was there any puncturing of the bubble with some of your Democratic colleagues hearing things that you think they really needed to hear? No, and and that was the other frustrating part, and it's it's not
5: uncommon, you know. These hearings often uh, get into the theatrics of everything, and you can never get to real discussion. It reminds me of, of uh, maybe about a year ago. I was getting very frustrated. Nobody wanted to have a real conversation. It was always just politics, and you know, you you kind of go, "Woe is me! I'm only one member," and then you go, and then I had to go, "Hey, stop! Like, hey, you're a member of Congress." You know, uh pick up your skirt, roll up your sleeves, go to work. And what we did was we brought the chief the border patrol chief to the to the Capitol or or to the to the uh uh to the House and I had a closed uh kind of briefing. It was four Democrats, four Republicans, and we just had a real conversation. There was no staff in there, there was no yeah. cameras, there was nobody. That, once, once the
0: cameras come on, right, the lights and the cameras and you've got your five minutes to shine and make a video and go viral, it's not Necessarily conducive to actual constructive progress, but there are other methods. Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, our guest on the Guy Benson show. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. All right, so I almost hesitate to dignify this, but. I think probably it needs to be addressed in some way, and maybe this is just something percolating among hyper-online political addicts, and I'm kind of in their ranks, so I'm aware of it at least. So I guess yesterday, former President Donald Trump was spending some time on his Truth Social platform amplifying this photograph, this Attack against Ron DeSantis. I've seen the photograph before. I think back when he was first running for governor, I saw this. And it supposedly is a picture of DeSantis, who looks like he's maybe in his early 20s, back when he was a teacher. And I guess he was at some party after the school year. And there were a bunch of people there, students, I think parents as well. Some of the details are sketchy on exactly what the context was. But this was 20 years ago. This is a young Ron DeSantis, and there are female, allegedly students, I don't know, who some people say they look college-age. Some people say that they look like they're in high school or they were in high school. I don't know the exact details of who these girls are. Their faces are blurred out. DeSantis is in the middle, smiling, and they're sort of crowded around him, hugging. It looks like he might have a beer in his hand. That's all we know. So there were some people, you know, fanning themselves with outrage, whatever it was, four or five years ago. Oh, was he drinking at a party with students present? Was this inappropriate? And other people were joking like, seriously, give me a break. Like, was this a party with other adults? And there were some students there after the school year, and the guy had a drink, and he was getting hugged by students. And by the way, the girls look really attractive, like – kind of makes Ron DeSantis look like the cool, popular, handsome young teacher. I didn't think twice about it when I first saw the photo years ago. So now the Trump people, the Trump army, is out there resurfacing it. They are trying to kill Ron DeSantis politically before he even decides whether he's running or not. And the desperation of these attacks going after his COVID performance like he did a bad job in Florida with COVID. We've talked about that here. Lying about the record, getting amplification and, like, the cavalry coming in from the DNC helping them with this attack. It's just ridiculous. So I think that's a backfire and a stupid attack. Now here's this one. And it's not just Trump fans who are circulating this and trying to turn it into something. They are circulating it in their little ecosystem And the allegation now is that DeSantis is a groomer, right? He's grooming these girls in a sexually inappropriate way. They've jumped straight to that, like Ron's a pedophile or something. Now, I've talked about the difference on a more serious note between making sure that schools are not indoctrinating and sexualizing young children at an early age and parents having a right to object to that. I think that is justified and legitimate i think that we go down a bad path particularly on the right when we're just screaming groomer all over the place oh you're a groomer you disagree with me you're a groomer i don't think that that's helpful i've made the point before that i understand the instinct which is the left always calls conservatives the worst possible things homophobes and transphobes and racists and bigots and all of that like, well, here's a groomer, here's a slur that can be used in that and deployed in kind of the same spirit to disqualify you and sort of cast aspersions on your character rather than making an argument. I get the temptation of that. I don't think it's a good idea. And now here we have it being used against Ron DeSantis based on this photo that is, in my view, innocuous and really shows nothing. That is seriously inappropriate. Even if you want to say, like, oh, should he have had a beer in his hand, if that is a beer, after the school year, if the girls are in high school, we don't even know every detail about this thing. But this is, like, not even a two-alarm fire, let alone a five-alarm fire, but they're going straight to groomer pedophile stuff. I mean, just absolutely desperate and ridiculous and Trump himself—it's not like this is just his, you know, ardent fans doing this. Trump was retruthing, i think that's their version of retweeting—he was amplifying this stuff. He was sharing it, saying, "Oh wow, look at look at Ron," you know, "if I had known this, I would have never have endorsed him." With this type of stuff, so he's absolutely leaning into this groomer attack. It's—it is preposterous, and I think a couple things. Number one. I use the word desperate. It absolutely applies. It's February. I would say at the earliest, Ron DeSantis might announce for president in May or June. There's a report that some of his top allies are forming a super PAC, right? I think that there's momentum building toward an announcement. I think he's going to run. I don't know that for sure. But we're months away from even an announcement, and he's busy doing stuff in Florida in the legislative session. If Trump personally is going the Ron DeSantis was a groomer of teenage girls route in February of 2023. Like, where else is there to go? I'm sure there are new lows to which people will sink. It's hard to think of one, though. More offensive than this. Like, oh, he's a pedophile or he was like, you know, sexually inappropriate with girls. Underage girls. That's what Trump is now basically alleging publicly. That's point number one. Like, where else is there to go from here? But if this doesn't work, if this doesn't stick, you know, what's next? Ron DeSantis is a serial killer? Was Ron DeSantis part of the gang rape cult that Brett Kavanaugh was in in Maryland or whatever? That crazy lie? Can we maybe get Michael Avenatti on the prison phone to make some allegations? I don't know. I don't know where they're going to go next. But this is where they've gone. And just like the COVID thing where they're saying, oh, it was terrible leadership, he was shutting down the state, he shut down all the beaches, is telling things that aren't true. I said at the time, if you want to go side-by-side comparison, Trump's leadership, deferring to Fauci and Burks all the time, criticizing Georgia for partially opening up and that sort of thing versus what DeSantis did, that is not on substance, on policy, a fight that Trump is going to win. From the perspective of conservatives, at least in my book. Same thing here. If you want to talk about creepy, actual groomers and sexual assailants, Ron DeSantis isn't the guy who was friends with Jeffrey Epstein, who flew on that private jet. That was Bill Clinton and also, yes, Donald Trump. I'm not saying that Trump did anything like that, but there's a bunch of photos. There's photos out there with Trump and these people. Actual bona fide pedophiles, sexual traffickers, all the horrible stuff. And Trump, at the very least, was in their orbit on the plane. Like, I don't think this is a path that he is wise to go down based on this ridiculous photo and this little smear that they're attempting. Anyway, that's my take on it. DeSantis was asked about it because, of course, right, the media is going to ask about this stuff. And DeSantis mostly avoided it. But this was also kind of a pointed answer,
6: cut thirty. And I'd also just say this. I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: good answer i think we see what's coming battle lines are getting drawn folks i'm putting it out there i like could choose your fighter moment might be coming the guy benson show is right back after this short break don't go anywhere
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through today's show, halfway through the week, it is the Guy Benson Show from Charlotte, North Carolina today. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. Well, it's been a while since we have talked, at least at length, about government-run, single-payer health care, which is a dream on the left. The progressive left wants to import into this country and then impose upon the whole nation a government-run health care system similar to what they have in the U.K. and in Canada. This has been a holy grail on the left for years. It has gained momentum. Quite a few of the Democrats who were vying for president in 2020 were supporters of single-payer health care, including now the vice president, Kamala Harris. Now, we have fought this idea tooth and nail every step of the way. And one of the arguments against Obamacare, among many, was that it was a step on the path toward single-payer health care. I think some on the left are in favor of the policy because they think it's a good policy. They think it is fair. They think it is equitable. I think there's also an ulterior motive among some of them, which is, Once the government runs the healthcare system and holds people's lives in their hands across the board, the fundamental nature of the relationship between citizen and centralized government changes forever in a way that I think, in their minds, will just grow the government further. It will solidify dependency. So there are a couple of reasons why I think they want this. I don't like the idea ideologically, just in principle. I also think it would be a disaster. You can start with the price tag. The estimates from nonpartisan sources are that over 10 years, the first 10 years of a single-payer system in the United States, the cost would be, 32 to 40 trillion dollars in new spending on top of the spending that we already do which already results in huge deficits and growing debt like the government before the huge covid blow up and emergency was spending 4 plus trillion dollars a year imagine adding almost that amount on top of it every year in perpetuity The tax increases that would be required across the board to even pay for some of this would be devastating, would be punitive, would be punitive, would affect every single American, not just the rich. There's no way to make that math work. It would be big tax hikes on everyone to pay for some or most of a program like this. It's just completely unrealistic. It is insanely expensive. In fact, it's so expensive that even very blue states, some of the bluest states that we have, California, Vermont, they have voted at least on some level of their state government to implement single-payer health care within their state. And both of those states ultimately had to pull back from the brink and not go through with it because there was just no money to do it. They were going to have to double the budget. The numbers were so completely eye-popping that even left-wingers in Vermont and California couldn't deny the math enough to just shrug and say, let's try it and be legends. So if it's not going to work in a small, homogenous, heavily left-leaning place like Vermont, how on earth is it going to succeed or work or be viable across our whole country? 330 plus million people. Then there's the minor little detail that under the plan, for example, that House Democrats introduced, what was it, two or three years ago? The existing health care arrangements of 177 million Americans would have been made illegal, outlawed, boom, gone. You can't have it anymore. So the whole Obamacare broken promise, if you like your plan, you can keep it. That affected millions of Americans. Imagine that affecting well over 100 million Americans, where people who are satisfied, and I know there's a lot of misinformation out there, but a lot of public polling shows that the vast majority of Americans are satisfied with their current healthcare situation. They don't want it to be disrupted or uprooted. It would, this would be a tough luck situation. Anyone who is holding... Private health insurance, a non government plan. Also, by the way, people who are on existing government plans like Medicare, all of that would go away and be replaced by a giant one size fits all government system. So if you like your plan, you cannot keep it. In fact, it's illegal. And if you don't like it, too bad. That's another big feature of single payer health care. Now, the good news is with a Republican House, it's going nowhere. With the current Senate, it's going nowhere. There's enough Democrats who are willing to be somewhat realistic or conscious about spending. Not that conscious about spending, but enough sufficiently so that they wouldn't go for something like this. Joe Biden won his party's nomination, not being a pro single payer guy, although Barack Obama, by the way, has come out in favor of it. It's coming. Down the pike. It might have been forestalled for now. The push might be paused because of the current state of play in American politics, and there's a battle happening within the Democratic Party over quote unquote moderate liberalism, which is well to the left of where it used to be, and then even further left, progressivism and socialism. Right, That is a wrestling match that is actively underway, and I suspect that as younger generations ascend in politics, the hardcore progressive left is going to get more and more powerful. So while single-payer health care is not an imminent threat right now in our politics, for some of the reasons that I just mentioned, this battle is never going to be over. So long as people on the left are invested in putting us in that type of regime which is why I think it's important for us to always be vigilant for what they're doing, keep an eye on what they're up to, and also assess how their dream is working elsewhere. We've talked before here on the show about long delays in care, in single-payer health care systems, where the government runs everything. The government is not efficient. The government is broken and has all sorts of flaws And one of them is people have to wait a long time to get care far too often, which is why you see people from around the world, especially rich people, leaving their countries, coming here for urgent high-quality care. There are concerns about the development of future drugs and medical procedures and innovation broadly in this sector, if the sector is controlled by the government on a government budget. You see rationing. These are familiar arguments, I would believe, if you paid attention to this stuff, even on some level in recent years. I'm just using the time that we have here. I'm going through these points in this context to set up a Wall Street Journal story from this week that does a deep dive into Britain's National Health Service, the NHS, which is something of a national religion over there. They're obsessed with it even when it is failing badly. That there's this weird bond that they have to it. It's like even if there are people dying around them, it's like, oh, we must have NHS. It's a point of national pride. Uh, Give it more money. This is an ongoing problem that they have over there. But this is the state of affairs at the NHS. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, quoting now, Britain's state-funded service is falling apart. People who suffer heart attacks or strokes wait more than one and a half hours on average for an ambulance. Hospitals are so full, they are turning patients away. A record 7.1 million people in England, more than one in 10 people, are stuck on waiting lists for non-emergency hospital treatment like hip replacements. The NHS on Monday faced the biggest strike in its history, with thousands of paramedics and nurses walking out over pay. Let's think about those few sentences for a second. You're having a heart attack, you're suffering a stroke, you're waiting 90 minutes on average for the ambulance to show up. That is literally the difference between life and death in a lot of situations. One out of ten people in the whole country are on a wait list right now to go get some care that they're waiting and waiting and waiting for, months in a lot of cases. And on top of all of it, because it's a government-run system from top to bottom, These are government employees, sort of like government union employees. Some of them are on strike right now. EMTs, paramedics. So the long wait times are getting even worse because people are on strike because they want more money. This is the glorious NHS under the single-payer health care regime in Britain. The UK's experience is a warning of what happens when supply and health care can't keep up with demand, the story says. The NHS has lost thousands of hospital beds over the past decade in its drive for efficiency. This is the word that the government uses. We have to find efficiencies, i.e. bring down the cost because everything's on the taxpayer. So they seek out efficiencies. COVID delayed treatments for patients, resulting in a vast waiting list. Hospitals in England were already at 98% capacity in December when the brutal flu season began to take hold. The mass of sick patients gummed up the system to devastating effect. Listen to this. Delays in treating people are causing the premature deaths of three to five hundred people a week, according to estimates. That's from the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Hundreds of people dying needlessly, prematurely every single week in the UK because people cannot get treatment. The NHS says that over the next year, it aims to cut the average, listen to this, it aims to cut the average time a heart attack sufferer waits for an ambulance to 30 minutes. Their goal, if they are wildly, quote-unquote, successful, is to cut that time by two-thirds and you're still waiting for half an hour to get an ambulance if you're having a heart attack. They give a few specific examples of people, not just statistics, real people, how this affects human beings. Just before 5 p.m. on November 18th, the family of Martin Clark called 999, the U.K. equivalent of 911, after the 68-year-old father, his five kids, began having chest pains. After waiting half an hour, they called again, pleading for an ambulance, saying that his condition was getting worse. In another call, 15 minutes after that, they told the dispatcher they were going to drive him to the hospital themselves. Even though the dispatcher encouraged them to wait for paramedics, they did so. 20 minutes after the family left for the hospital, the dispatcher left a voicemail at their house to say the service still didn't have an ambulance to send. Mr. Clark died shortly after arriving at the hospital. About a week later, five-year-old Yusef Nazir died from what began as a throat infection. His family said they'd taken the boy who was having trouble breathing to the emergency room at their local hospital, Rotherham. It gave some antibiotic pills. The doctors, the folks there, here are some antibiotic pills after a six-hour wait and sent him home. The family said they pleaded with the hospital a few days later to admit Yousef and be given further tests because he was in real trouble. They were told the hospital was full. By the time the family got Yusef by ambulance to a different hospital, he had severe pneumonia. He died later from organ failure and cardiac arrest. Quote, they killed Yusef. It's as simple as that, his uncle said. A five-year-old boy has died of tonsillitis in a rich industrialized country. It shows you the entire system has serious issues. Yeah, to say the least. There are more examples, more statistics. You've got to hear this. This is important. We continue going through this Wall Street Journal expose of the U.K.'s NHS right after this.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show, we are reading to you at length from the Wall Street Journal's piece about the NHS, the health system the single-payer health regime in the UK. It is devastating. It is damning. The story goes on. Quote, almost every day, media reports allege new horror stories. An 83-year-old woman in Leicester with a suspected stroke waiting more than 18 hours in a makeshift tent outside an ER. A 90-year-old woman with suspected sepsis waiting three days. A man in Wales with diabetes lost his toe after it turned blue and then black as he sat waiting for treatment for three days. By this winter, half of all patients in an emergency ward waited four hours or more to be seen by a doctor, and a further four hours on top of that, on average, to get a bed, according to the official government data. The longer the wait, the worse the outcomes. This is life and death, and the wait times are long and growing in the U.K. We know this happens in Canada, too. The story also points out money alone may not solve the problem. Some in the industry warn. In Wales, the regional government has for most years since 2000 spent more money per capita than any region in the U.K. on health care. Yet nearly every indicator from waiting times to health outcomes are still worse in Wales. Now, there are outcomes. It's a poorer area. It has the oldest population on average in the U.K., but they're throwing the most money at the problem and having the worst outcomes in the U.K., Focus is turning on whether the system needs to be revamped. Problem is any real market revamping is immediately attacked politically and people freak out because it's like people are questioning the religion. Imagine your religion killing 500 people a week because of its failures, but you're so wedded to it that it's like, oh, no, we we can't do anything about that. Just more money, more government. This is why some people want this here, this exact kind of mentality. Here's one more anecdote from this story. Just over a year ago, Ashkay Patel, an IT professional in northern England, made five calls to 999. Again, that's their 911, when his mother developed breathing problems. Initially, the call handler told him an ambulance would be there soon. His mother's health, his mother's health quickly worsened, and she became too sick to be loaded into a car. He watched his distressed 56 year old mother gradually go pale and die. The paramedics arrived after an hour, were unable to resuscitate her. Quote, we always believe that the NHS exists for us when we're in need, he said. But personally, if I had to call an ambulance, I wouldn't. I don't trust them. I can't. End quote. The personal anecdotes, the broader data, what a debacle facing the NHS. This is after huge spikes in funding, by the way, due to COVID. They're still dealing with this. Full hospitals, ration care, long wait lines, strikes among some of the employees, delaying everything further, denial of life-saving care and treatments and drugs because they're too expensive for the government budget. These are the features of a government-run system. On top of the total lack of affordability, the massive tax increases, the outlawing of private health care, the ripping people away from the arrangements that they have, you have to think about all of these factors. You have a very large and growing percentage of the Democratic Party that looks at all of this and says, yes, that is what we need here in the United States. And from my perspective everything that we've just talked about is exactly why everyone else needs to be aware of that threat because that's what it is and fight it and not let it even get close to fruition because the toll will be tragic on multiple levels the guy benson show is back next
2: It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit longdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
0: It's the Happy Hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Broadcasting from Charlotte, North Carolina today and tomorrow. Great to be here in the Tar Heel State. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live, including across our great affiliates. There's a brand new one joining the team this week. K. Dawn out in Las Vegas. Welcome, guys. And all the other great affiliates scattered across this nation. Of course, there's the online stream, the app, Fox Nation, Odyssey.com. Lots of options. And the one-stop shop is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com for that or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do follow us on social media if you're on social. Twitter and Instagram, it's at GuyBensonShow. And this hour, as always, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which actually I was talking to my buddy who runs the Long Drink. He said Vegas, Nevada, huge, huge market for the Long Drink. So if you're tuning in on K-Dawn and just getting acclimated to the show, you might already be very familiar with The Long Drink. We've been OG fans now for years, and they've sponsored the Happy Hour faithfully every day for years. We love them. We love the product, but always drink responsibly. 21-plus only. TheLongDrink.com is their website. That's TheLongDrink.com to find out where the product is sold near you or to order online. With us now is Juan Williams. Fox News senior political analyst, columnist at The Hill, best-selling author, and Juan, good to have you here.
6: My pleasure, Charlotte. What a nice city.
0: Very, very pretty. I'm right near the downtown area. It's very walkable. It's been years since I've been here, so it's unseasonably warm. It was like hitting 70, I think, today I saw, so I can't complain about that. So, Juan, you and I were on the Fox News Radio National Network coverage Leading up to the State of the Union last night, we both gave our perspectives, what we were expecting to see, and that sort of thing. I'm going to venture out on a limb, and I'm going to guess that you think this was a great speech by Biden and the Republicans were terrible.
6: Well, the Republican behavior was not, I would say, it didn't meet the standards uh, of any parent in America uh, to be shouting and, you know, hoots and calls and all that. Uh, Not very appealing. But I thought – let's put that aside for the moment – I thought President Biden did what he had to do in terms of demonstrating some energy, power, vigor, uh, and even jousting with people, so demonstrating some mental agility. And, you know, all the questions, Guy, about, oh, he's too old, is is he mentally deficient, he didn't look anything but a a champion in full title contending shape last night.
0: Okay, interesting. I mean – I think he showed some vigor and energy for sure. Um, He also had some very weird moments, though, like, you know, slurring words and stumbling over stuff. I mean, to me, it was an energetic but fairly typical Biden-esque performance. I do just want to wonder on the whole, and I'll just push you on this a tiny bit, on the whole comportment question on the Republicans. I don't love a lot of the heckling. Uh, I know that some people actually love political heckling, and you think about the House of Commons in London and the way that they go after each other. But the State of the Union, at least for a long time, has been more dignified. We do things differently there. It was a big deal when that one Republican from South Carolina yelled at Barack Obama in a quiet moment, and they ended up, I think, you know, condemning him in a resolution. That was years ago now. We've seen more heckling and yelling from the, from the cheap seats, if you will, in the last couple of years. We also famously saw in his final State of the Union address, the Speaker of the House reacting to President Trump, Nancy Pelosi stood behind him and physically tore up a copy of his speech dramatically as he was concluding, would that fall on the scale of inappropriate or is it just, you know, Republicans who do bad things and the Democrats do good things?
6: Is that a setup, Guy? Of course, I you know, look, I don't think it's appropriate. I think that what you should do in that moment is if you have some fire, if you have an angry reaction to what was said you know save it for outside and tell the reporters you think this guy's full of it say it yeah but i don't think you need to make a demonstration that way you know some people i don't know if you saw this in the new york times they were suggesting why isn't it more dramatic why don't we use some of the more contemporary hollywood type techniques you know neon lights flashing lights (laughs) <laughs> video segments. I was like, no, no, no. But you know what, guy? It makes me feel old at people. This is what people are suggesting. You want to jazz it up. No, I want to see if the President of the United States is able to articulate an agenda and tell me how the country is doing in a way that I find convincing. And last night, that's why I say, I think Joe Biden, for all of his doubters, had a good night. And the hecklers, the to me, the most memorable moment of the whole thing. Is when they start heckling him about uh, Social Security and Medicare, and he says, "No, I you know call my office. I can show you where Republicans have suggested this." And then they come back and he says, "Oh, so we have an agreement. Social Security, Medicare off the table, and they cheer. To me, this was like, "Wow, this guy's in charge of the audience. You know he gets the room and he's in charge of the room.
0: Well, we talked about this. My take on that was he was lying about what the Republicans were saying about the debt ceiling fight. And they were upset about the lies, so they were jeering him. And then he tried to turn it into like a win that he had convinced them to take his side. I think in the context of the debt ceiling fight, that's right. Both sides had said that stuff should be off the table. They need to be on the table down the line, Juan. We have to fix these programs at some point. I don't think this leverage point is the moment to do it. Seems like maybe some folks are talking past each other there. Although, something that you said just sparked a thought. Are you an NBA fan? I think you are, right? You're a Wizards fan?
6: Huge. I'm a huge uh, NBA fan.
0: Because I saw, I, I don't really watch any of the NBA, but I saw some people in my Twitter feed, including political people who would otherwise be watching the speech. They were all tuning over to watch the Lakers game because I guess LeBron James set the all time point scoring record last night, and a lot of folks were sort of. Uh, bleeding away from the State of the Union address to go watch LeBron do his thing. You said that maybe there's this suggestion among some to zhuzh up the State of the Union and give it more of a modern feel, make it more exciting. I wonder if you could sort of almost do, you know how they have the various people walk into the chamber in different groups, like the Supreme Court justices walk in, the generals walk in, and then you know, in comes the president and everyone cheers. I wonder if you could almost like, turn the lights down in the chamber and have the spotlights flying around in lasers like they do in an nba starting lineup what do you think of that
6: i think that's wild (laughs) but let me ask you something what at that point because i don't know about you but there's some part of me that thinks you know what state of the union is kind of passe and can be boring and geez you know it feels like a formality you got to do it some people say it's just written in there that the president, the chief executive, should tell the country what's the state of affairs annually. But it's not required as a speech. I think you know what mm, I hear you. I do want it to happen, but if you start with what, did, what was that word? Was a French word you used?
0: Just to josh it up, as you know, like make it uh, make it sparkle a little bit. You know, add add some extra drama because to me it just feels kind of like a spectacle already these days with the cheering and the standing ovations and the competing stuff, I'm being sarcastic. I would never actually want to see that happen. I would be more inclined to just say the president can write an address to Congress, put a staple in the thing, send it to the leaders uh, of both chambers, and then be done with it with, with no televised speech the way it used to be. I would prefer that to making it even more of you know a big production and show. I just wonder, to a more serious point, You think he did what he had to do last night. I think there's a lot of people who agree with you. But, like, what he, quote-unquote, had to do, does it really matter? Because will any of us be thinking about it, talking about it, even by, you know, the day after tomorrow at this stage? I just just feel like it's very ethereal in our political news cycle, something like this.
6: Yeah, but so here's the thing. This is a lot like... You know, when you meet somebody new, you know, first impressions count. And this was first impression for the 24 presidential campaign in my book.
0: Like a first impression one. The guy's been in politics for 100 years.
6: No, no, no. First impression in terms of this campaign, saying he's in this cycle, he's in to win it this time around. And I think you think
0: he's running. You definitely think he's running.
6: Oh, I don't think there's any question at this point but I think that the body language is what I'm trying to say. I was I, I didn't want to it's not a political argument here. I I just think that you're right when you say, you know, it's kind of, you know, happened Tuesday night by Friday night we're on to something else everyone's ready for the Super Bowl. Yeah. But I'm just telling you guy, his body language, the impression of vigor and strength was absolutely essential for him. Forget anything he said, forget the jousting, the heckling, all that all the the fur coat on Marjorie Taylor Green. I don't know what that was about. But forget it. Just the idea that people come away from the speech and say, hey, Biden looked good. That counts big time, big time for him right now. See,
0: this is where I'll agree with you to an extent. I think that this speech was not a speech about Republicans. This was not a speech about independence, really. This was not ultimately a speech about persuading people to come And vote for him or support Democrats. I think at this moment, if he is moving toward an announcement to run again, where it did matter in terms of the optics and the sense of the base afterwards was that he wants to foreclose the possibility of any serious challenge to him on the Democratic side. So if he can come out and at least on that big stage sort of pass the eye test for a lot of Democrats – and then feel like, oh, he stared down the Republicans and he won. Like, I don't really actually buy that. But that is very much what the base believes. That's kind of the dogma now in Democratic politics. Those things do matter if he's planning to run again and wants to make sure that that field is basically clear for him. I I agree with you on that point. You did say this one. You keep tripping new thoughts here. You mentioned the Super Bowl. That's coming up on Sunday. Got the... uh, Chiefs, of course, and the eagles i 'm rooting for the chiefs because i can 't stand Philadelphia sports or Philadelphia sports fans with all due respect to any of them who might be out there. Uh, I think that the Eagles will probably win. I just think they 're playing too well, but i 'll be rooting for the Chiefs. I just wonder, do you have a, a dog in the fight one
6: you know, I went to school in Philadelphia, I went to Haverford College, my daughter went to Penn, uh, so I have lots of friends in philly but guy, I hear you Feeling about Philly sports fans. It's too Mm -hmm. much. The anger, the fights, I can't take it. Uh, And actually, Fox is broadcasting the Super Bowl this year, so please tune in. And Fox, the last time I went to the Super Bowl, I went with Fox, and the Chiefs won.
0: There you go. So maybe we'll see a repeat of that. I like Mahomes. I knew it wouldn't take that much to get a Washington sports fan to dump on Philly sports fans. Like, that's an easy thing to do, which is why I asked the question. But interestingly, in tying this in to our topic and President Biden and his PR and all of that, on the coverage last night, Fox News Channel, State of the Union, Brett Baier, our colleague, made this observation, I think made a little bit of news here in cut 33.
3: Every year, traditionally, the network covering the Super Bowl gets an interview with the president of the United States. Uh, We have formally asked... For that interview, but we have not received an answer yet whether they are going to officially do it or not. We're running out of days.
0: So, Juan, I guess the White House noncommittal on granting an interview to Fox News for this extended pregame show on the Fox Super Bowl, annual tradition back to 2004. I know Trump, I think one of his four years, snubbed NBC, although he did many interviews with NBC through those years. Trump would talk to almost anyone all the time. Biden has not done a single interview with Fox News yet during his presidency. This would be the obvious expected time to do it. But it's like he's ghosting Fox at this point. I was thinking about Barack Obama, you know, having whether you liked the guy or not, you loved him. I wasn't a big fan of his presidency or his policies. But he was confident enough in his policies, in his ability to not only grant Fox two Super Bowl interviews, during his time in office, he sat down with Bill O'Reilly. It wasn't even one of the news people. It was a sort of sharp-elbowed opinion guy. And they had some pretty feisty exchanges that I thought were really worthwhile for the country. No one's asking Biden to sit down with Tucker Carlson here. But I feel like at least Brett Bayer or Shannon Bream, that's something he ought to do. I wonder what you think.
6: I think that he should do it. And I think Shannon was over there for the breakfast with the anchors yesterday at the White House And I would expect that they will do something here. By the way, you know, when you think back to Obama and O'Reilly, I think back to Obama and Brett Bear, And that got pretty rough because Brett kept interrupting, and then they were mad at Brett and all that. But you know what? I think this is just – it's pro program for me. Yeah, just go ahead and do it and get it done. Let's not have any rough feelings about this.
0: I tend to agree. I mean, look – Fox gets the Super Bowl in the rotation. You're the president of the United States. I can understand why they might want to keep him away. They could say, oh, look, you know, we're sticking it to Fox. The base will like that. They don't like him doing sit-down interviews with anyone. He doesn't do a lot of one-on-one televised interviews in general. Uh, In fact, last year he did the Super Bowl interview, then didn't do another news TV interview one-on-one nationally for eight months. It was like the following fall he finally did one. So if they – do them so seldom, I think, because they don't have great confidence in his abilities in that setting. They might not want to give one of these rare opportunities to Fox where he's really going to get, I think, a, a tough but fair grilling. But on this point, I think we agree again, Juan. He wanted this job. He might want it again. He might want to be president for six more years here. Part of the gig is doing the Super Bowl interview. It's a Fox Super Bowl. Brett and Shannon are pros. Just do it. Take the questions. I think it comes with the territory, and I hope that the White House makes this right and does it. It seems like it's an open question for now. Super Bowl coming up on Sunday, of course, on Fox. Juan Williams, Fox News Senior Political Analyst, columnist at The Hill. You can read one of his many best-selling books when you have the time. Juan, always appreciate chatting with you. We'll do it again soon.
6: Take care, Guy. Thank you.
0: The happy hour on The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Happy hour. Guy Benson Show. All right. Do we have to talk about it? The kiss up in the gallery, State of the Union? We've avoided it so far. Have you seen this photo? It's the first lady and the second gentleman right next to each other. And, I mean... It looks very much like they are kissing on the lips, okay? The camera's snapped at that moment. It's a kiss on the mouth. So I think the vice president was asked about it. She said she hadn't seen it yet. People are having some fun with it. People are speculating. I have a pretty clear point of view on this, which is in the moment and the excitement and the bustle and, frankly, the anxiety – Right. I think the first lady understands that sometimes her husband doesn't have great appearances and performances. So she's probably nervous for him. The second gentleman knows that his wife is under fire. We read at length from that New York Times story earlier in the week. Knives out for her. So they're both probably a little bit anxious. And then they have this moment of greeting each other in public with a lot of eyes on the event, eyes on them. I think they just misfired. I think they went for the cheek kiss, and someone turned the wrong way, and bang. That has happened to me before. It is very uncomfortable and awkward, and you just kind of move past it. Unfortunately, there were cameras everywhere, so people caught it. I think that's what happened. And I defy anyone to give me a better explanation, honestly. Like, oh, what, they're they're secretly in love, and they decide to kiss in front of the entire country in the House of Representatives? I think it was a misfire. Who turned the wrong way? Was it Dr. Jill or Dougie? That's the mystery here. Guy Benson Show back with more next.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Earlier on this Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show, we interviewed Mark Thiessen, Fox News contributor and former chief speechwriter for President George W. Bush. We got his assessment and analysis of last night's State of the Union address. Here's a little bit of our back and forth with Mark Thiessen. When he finally got around to foreign policy, he was sort of feeling himself on the China thing. And I'm all for Republicans and Democrats coming together to stand up to China. I think that is an American duty, regardless of ideology. But this was kind of a weird, shouty moment cut 15.
3: Name me a world leader who changed places with Xi Jinping. Name me one. Name me one.
0: I mean, I don't really understand the point here, Mark. I think there's quite a lot of world leaders who would love to be the dictator in charge of one of the largest countries in the in the whole world. Uh, I, you know, it's it's an evil regime that he presides over that's genocidal and does a bunch of horrible stuff. But it just seemed like you know the yelling and saying name one leader who would change place with Xi Jinping. It's like you could probably name dozens. I just didn't really get that moment.
4: I didn't get that moment either, and I didn't get the complete inattention to 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 China. I mean, he spent more time. Talking about uh, resort fighting unfair resort fees yes. and unfair uh, corporate fees than he did talking about China. Yeah, he, he, he spent 10 sentences on China. Yeah, he's like, he's like, uh,
0: he's like, he's well, like, well, you know, we'll deal with uh, Beijing another day, but back to sandals. Is it really all inclusive?
4: <laughs> exactly. You know, like exactly. what? I mean. <laughs> If this had happened when Ronald Reagan was president, Ronald Reagan would have not only shot down the balloon over the Pacific instead of the Atlantic, he would have had the pilot who fired the missile in the in the gallery and called him out alongside mm-hmm. Lenny Scutnik, You know, uh, so I mean, that, but you know, we all know that Biden is no Reagan. But I mean, it's just the idea that you know that we're the, that in a State of the Union address where we're now engaged in. Uh, what China, China and Russia have locked arms to wage a new cold war against us, and it merits ten sentences. Uh, but but resort fees and all the rest of it mer- merit you know an extended dialogue. Is is just stunning. And then also you know he didn't thank the troops. He didn't say anything about first responders. It was just it was it was like so many things that are standard in a State of the Union address. He didn't do. But then, and then he talks about the bipartisanship and all. He says, I signed 300 bipartisan bills into law in, in my first two years in office. You know how many Donald Trump signed into office in his first two, his first two years? 442. Because most of them are ceremonial, renaming post offices or things that are not controversial. The president signed you know, bipartisan bills every day. It's the controversial stuff that he's made partisan. And then he turns around and attacks Republicans and says something that's completely false, which is that this Republicans want to sunset Social Security. I mean, it's just a lie. The Washington Post fact checker gave it four Pinocchios when he said it the first time, and he keeps, say, and he keeps saying it. And oh, but Mark, no, Mark, you're missing,
0: you're missing the point. This was genius jujitsu by Biden who lied about Republicans, and then they were mad about it. And then he said, wait, we agree, and they said yes, and then – Presto, he won. That—that's haven't you? Haven't you heard, Mark? That's what happened.
4: Before your eyes, the unifier, the unifier in chief.
0: <laughs> very, very weird stuff. And I look—I get people saying that you know he maybe exceeded expectations, or is more energetic than usual, and he parried some of the Republican heckling, you know, decently well. I get all that, but I mean, you have people f- tripping over themselves. This was the greatest speech I've ever seen. From him. I think one particularly demented uh, political commentator said it was the greatest State of the Union address he has ever seen in his decades of life. It's like, I don't understand why people get in their brains to be such hacks sometimes. You know, grading on a curve, I guess it was fine. I don't think it was very good, and I don't think we'll be talking about it or remembering it, as I said earlier, by Friday. You know, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Let's quickly, though, Mark, talk about the response, the Republican response. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, down there in Little Rock, beautiful exterior shot of that mansion. The southern governor's mansions often look very, very nice. And uh, she was seated in a living room setting. She gave, I think it was well delivered. I think, uh, you know, it looked very good. Her pacing was good. I thought that in terms of what it was, much shorter obviously than the state of the union it was structured quite well and her her anecdotes about visiting the troops and you know the dead of night and the secret trip overseas sort of a, a stirring conclusion she talked about beating cancer earlier in the speech I just think that she did a, a very nice job some of the political stuff though Mark those were those were some pretty tough shots for a state of the union response uh, a little bit more uh, aggressive than we've seen at least in the last couple of years, to my ear, do you agree? it's sort of Mash Biden in a way that full interview with Mark Tyson and today's entire show available on the podcast for free on demand, no charge at all, same as every day when the show is over guy benson show dot com Podcast dot com or wherever you get your podcasts, you've got options. When we come back to Home Stretch, a couple of updates related to warm water, showers, etc., I think we're gonna put a bow on this one finally, straight ahead.
2: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com.
0: Home stretch, Charlotte, North Carolina, Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonshow.com for our podcast free on demand every day as we like to mention frequently it continues to grow thanks to all of you we really appreciate it well we have a resolution this time i think it's safe to say it i had a false start on monday i thought we'd fix the problem with the hot water heater Uh, incorrect things went south very quickly mid-shower as a matter of fact spent multiple days pleading with neighbors to let us shower at their homes and i just want to publicly thank all of them for being so gracious bottles of wine as i mentioned have been delivered like thank you but i think that humiliation and those walks of shame are over but only because we had to spend thousands of dollars to get a brand new machine and adam is such a nerd about this stuff he sort of geeks out about it he was watching youtube videos about this model he read the owner's manual like cover to cover I didn't even notice it when I walked in, right past it in the garage. But the fact is, at long last, it's been replaced. It's working. I worked out last night and then stepped into a luxurious piping hot shower. I took a photo, actually, just of the water falling from the showerhead and sent it to the team like, success, finally. So I'm just going to knock on some wood here and hope that it all holds. But I think... We've got it covered. And by the way, 25-year warranty is the deal on this thing. So that seems pretty good to me, given what we paid for it. And again, this is not a luxury. This is a must-have. You have to be able to bathe. And you cannot be in freezing water in the middle of the winter. right? I'm, I'm justifying this big expense to all of you on the air just to sort of, I don't know, try to put myself at peace with the whole episode. So consider this almost like a form of Therapy for me, thank you, everybody. Meanwhile, relatedly, I had mentioned, I think in passing that quiet Wyatt was having a problem. He recently moved buildings to a new apartment complex, was very happy to say goodbye to the old management team, and he sent a lot of angry emails to them. well, he's in the new place, and he had a shower problem, something of a leak. Wyatt leaks are like really problematic. I would imagine if you run an apartment company in some sort of a a building like this, you probably want to get on a leak immediately because that can have literally a cascading effect. Has that been resolved?
4: It indeed has been resolved. A quick little email, and it was all
5: resolved yesterday.
0: Huh. So, I mean, so far it sounds like you're probably more impressed with the new management situation than the past one, given the responsiveness there? Definitely. Were you nervous? Because I know you were... Doing a lot of State of the Union coverage last night, helping out around Fox in D.C. What time did you get home?
4: I, I think our coverage ended around 11:30 here on the radio, so I got home a little after midnight, and I was anxiously awaiting to see if there was going to be a, you know, a pool of water in my bathroom. But it was all fixed, and I was pretty happy.
0: Okay, so we're rolling with some good news on this whole front here, which brings us to Christine, and she does what she sometimes, occasionally does to us, and she did it this week, where in the context of a conversation, she'll just sort of chime in with something like, oh, yeah, by the way, um, I tried out for the bachelor once. So just sort of dropping that in like it's nothing. And it's like, well, hang on, stop. We could do a whole segment just on that. Where did that come from? So Christine teased us. She floated the possibility, at least the, the specter of some sort of criminal involvement involving a shower. She said she had done something. To her shower, or she had a shower story, and then she thought better of it, quote-unquote, because she worried that she might be admitting to illegal activity. Uh, and we have told her, oh, that's nonsense. You need to tell us now. You need to fess up. It's just between us, after all. It's just among friends. So, Christine, what is this shower criminal caper that you were a part of? And where on the criminality scale does it fall compared to, I don't know, the uh, vacuum cleaner return scheme from Judge e. Joyce.
1: I'm still not sure. So I still don't know if this is something that I should mention on air. I did just, I just asked Dan, is shower tampering a thing? Have you ever heard of that before?
0: I have. So, In fact,
1: I think, wasn't
0: Trump kind of obsessed with this? Like Trump would bring up a lot, water pressure and shower heads and it really annoyed him and it was one of his applause lines. I don't know if this is what this is this is maybe where you're going. I don't know. Where are you going with this?
1: So, um I do not like the temperature of our hot water in our apartment complex. And we pay a lot of money to live there. So I put a request in for somebody to come and fix it.
0: So hold on, not hot enough? Mm-mm. Is that the situation? Yeah.
1: Okay. I like a hot, hot shower. All right. So they come, and I follow the man into the bathroom, into the shower, and I see what he's doing. I watch, and I watch, and I wait. And now what he does is he's taking the, the handle. What would you call that, like the shower handle? He takes it off. I don't know. I, I, I bet a lot of people know this. And there's like a little like lever that you can like move. Where it says like "hot or cold," mm-hmm. and he pushed it just like a little bit more towards the hot. But I felt that he didn't go far enough. So I watched him do all this and then like, I guess, screw it back on or whatever he had to do. And then when he left, I went and found Bobby's tools. We don't have a ton, but I found that screw. And I went and opened it up again, and I made it even hotter.
0: Did you just just to jump in? Did you test how it felt before you adjusted it?
1: No. I knew it wasn't going to be
0: good enough. Based on what? Your vast plumbing experience?
1: <laughs> I mean, I just knew. I just, like, had this feeling. Like, I felt like they sent him there just to, like, appease me. Like, he barely moved anything. And I just mm-hmm. I just wanted it hotter. I knew I needed it to be hotter.
4: You
0: didn't call up, you know, Johnny, your consultant on most things? To run it past him, you just had a gut instinct about this one, so you just broke out the tools and made some changes? Plumber cookie?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, first of all, I just want you to know, Johnny and I have broken up. He has stopped stopped responding to any text of mine, so I guess Johnny and I are done. So, no, I couldn't call him about that because he... Lucky man. But go on, please. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just a plumber now. (laughs) Jack of all trades.
0: All right, so what was the outcome? Did it work?
1: It's pretty hot. I have to say we have really hot water. I have to like sometimes make it cold. You know what? The, well, the last minute of my shower is always the cold plunge anyway. It's always like freezing cold.
0: You always do that?
1: Yeah. You're supposed Yeah. You're yes. not
0: supposed to. I know people, some people swear by it where you have a nice hot shower and then you flip it to cold and it, I guess, is supposed to release it, it, certain. T-
1: no, it teaches you to do, do hard things. Like yeah, in we, your... we,
0: I know we we had this debate on the air, what, last year or the year before? It was maybe during COVID when everyone was at home and everyone had a lot of time on their hands, so people were debating the merits of different showering practices. We definitely had this discussion. I didn't realize you did the, uh, the polar plunger or whatever every day. I did it by accident, involuntarily, on Monday, where I was having a nice, very brief, warm shower, and then, boom, it turned cold. Not something I want to replicate. Nope. No, thank you. You can keep doing that. But the fact is, you made the change. It is now much hotter. It is to your liking. When was this done, by the way? I'm just trying to get a very specific timeline. No, uh,
1: I'm, not for giving, the police. I'm not giving you a date. I'm worried. I feel like you're, you're collecting evidence here. Do the
0: we... reason I'm asking this is actually for not just, yes, evidence gathering against you, but also the other curiosity is once you did that, once you changed it, made everything hotter— have you noticed a change in your bill, your water bill, your heating bill, anything like that, or is that being absorbed by the building and you're just paying like a flat fee? How does that work
1: Um we pay for water
0: okay doesn't it
1: no doesn't no, I'm asking Does't come in the rent? I have no clue I have to ask All right, I that guess might Bobby. be something
0: you could yeah <laughs> maybe ask Bobby like, hey, doing this, it's much more comfortable now. I like it, but you know, are we paying a lot more? Or is someone else sort of picking up the slack? That's, that's one of the things that I'm wondering about. But uh, you can go and investigate.
1: Am I in trouble now, do you think?
0: <laughs> They're going back to jail. I mean, it, it's been since December, right, when you were the suspected Christmas cookie spiller at the Christmas party, where you spilled on everyone and then we thought the couch and you had to call us from the, from the jail. Not really, by the way, in case people are listening, like new people to the program are so confused right now. Is this woman a repeat offender? Yes, but not necessarily in a full-blown criminal way. Just to clarify that point, I would say, and I can be pretty judgmental, I think I'm tough but fair on Christine, I would say you're fine. Or at least I would defend your actions on this. I think that this is a reasonable course of action because you pay a very high rent in that building. Bathing is important. Hot showers, more than ever, I'm reminded, are very important. And for you to make sure that you can actually have a satisfyingly hot shower is, yes, somewhat taking matters into your own hands in a way that probably the building wouldn't support or would frown upon. I think it is a justified decision, and therefore... I say not guilty, and I'm the judge, jury, and executioner on this show, so at least for these purposes, you're great. Now, if someone like your landlord in the building is listening or a local law enforcement official is listening, I mean, they have to reach their own conclusions, and you know, Lord knows that you admit to all sorts of other things on the air. I mean, you could just like, create a whole dossier about cookie just by listening to Bonus Benson on weekends, for example.
1: I, I – thank you, Guy. I appreciate uh, the backing. And guess what? Now that I know that I can plumb – plumber? I can plumb? <laughs> I think that I'm this weekend going to uh, change – I don't like the faucet. No, not the fauc- – What's the shower head. I don't like it. I mm-hmm. saw yours, and I think I want that, like the, the rain thing.
6: So we're going to work on – yeah, I'm going to work yep. on that
1: this weekend.
0: All right. Well, I look forward – very much to next week's home stretches where we're talking about the massive water damage done to not just your apartment but the whole building and the lawsuits that emanate from that. Because when Christine goes into a weekend planning to do something with a great plan, invariably by Monday there is a disaster. So there could be some great content here for the show. So I encourage you to do that. Go to the, your local you know, Home Depot or Lowe's and get that water showerhead and see how it goes. Godspeed, Christine out of time here. Back here tomorrow, also from North Carolina these couple of days on the Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Have a great night.